Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. It is my pleasure to have my good friend and fellow skater, Greg Witt, join me. A little bit about Greg. Greg is an entrepreneur, chief strategy officer at Engaged Youth Co., author, best-selling book, The Gen Z Frequency, former professional skateboarder and original founder of the 90s skateboard and apparel brand, Good Times. Greg, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, John, always. Yeah, man. So, man, one thing that I love to share with the audience with each of our guests is how me and the guest met. And what's funny is a lot of my guests have been personal friends, but you and I met in a very, I guess you could say corporate way, which is we connected on LinkedIn when I was at GameStop. And then I, if I memory serves, and I'm curious to hear your interpretation of this, but you hit me up and we got on the phone and like, I want to say like 15 minutes into our call, I was like, dude, I'm a skateboarder too. And then everything just clicked. And it was like, oh, yeah. you get it. You skate, yeah. you can relate. <laughs> it cuts so much of the BS out of the whole picture. And it like, it unifies you on so many different levels. It's awesome. Yeah, it's just, there's something about, and I think it's the game, it, it's the same in gaming. It's the same in esports. It's the same in skateboarding. It's like when you're part of a niche subculture, when you've experienced those things, like you and I both have like, put our bodies on the line for tricks, like for that, that one second feeling of the roll away or whatever. And just like knowing that we both have done that and love it and get it. It just is a connection that is so much broader than just skateboarding. And it's, it's, I think, I think we've stayed closer in connection. We've, we've strove to work on all sorts of different stuff, much more than we would have if we were just non-skaters. Absolutely. I feel like it's a, it's a qualifier, you know, on a lot of levels. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember too, I, I was out in LA one time and I was like, what are you doing for the rest of the day? I was like, let's go skate Venice. And you brought your kids and like, we're skating that bowl and you're a bowl skater. You're, you're a transition skater. I'm a street skater. So I remember actually thinking, I don't think I shared this with you, but we roll up to Venice. I remember thinking like, dude, I, I don't, I can't really skate anything here. And they've got, <laughs> they've got this 10 foot deep bowl and Greg's just ripping it. And I'm like, okay, let me carve. Let me see if I can hit some tiles. And then I ended up doing a backsmith on it. And which I literally never would have thought I even had the ability to do that trick, but it was the vibe. No, it was awesome. I remember that very well. In fact, I'm a little bit like big round wall things big structures like that sometimes actually weird me out because I'm more of a bird skater, but I will save that for a different podcast. Yes. Episode two with Greg Witt, but this is episode one. So I gave a little bit of a, a background with your intro there, but there's a lot to unpack there. What was the first stop on this crazy journey that you've been on? I mean, I got my start in, in, in entrepreneurship at age 16, when I started Good Times, Good Times Skateboards, it was originally called the Good Times Intelligence Agency because we, we didn't, one, we didn't think that adults would take us serious as Good Times because we were such partiers. Yeah. And then the intelligence agency part, you know, we were kind of vibing on the secret agents of, of Good Times kind of thing. And, and we went with that and, and, and I did the Good Times Skateboards and then up later apparel, man, I mean, we even started our own apparel factory from oh, wow. 91 to 97, 98. Cool. So, you know, I, I gave an intro as to, you know, what you've done throughout your career. There's a lot there. Can you tell us, share with the audience, what was the first step on this crazy journey you've been on? The first step for me was definitely founding Good Time Skateboards in 1991 when I was still in high school age 16 as you know, I was an amateur, a very active amateur before becoming a professional skateboarder and just wanted to kind of take the, you know, put things in my own hands and create my own company. 
and and we did it. And the long story short, it became a global brand within the first year, and it was just an incredible journey from ninety one uh, all the way to nineteen ninety seven ninety eight. Wow. So were you were you entrepreneurial, or should I say? Were your parents entrepreneurial? Because I've I've just started on my entrepreneurial journey, and you know I never knew that I would be owning my own company, starting my own thing. I wasn't surrounded with people like that, but you started that at age sixteen. Was did that come from your family or somewhere else? I think it. I think it came. So the the, the answer is twofold. I I think it came from my own personal drive to to do something and to create. But yes, my my grandfather and my father are, you know, historically, you know, serial, the true, the true essence of serial entrepreneurs from wow. breweries to vending company, to catering businesses, very successful and unsuccessful businesses. And, and I sure. grew up in, in sort of the fury of entrepreneurship. So I actually kind of grew up not wanting to work, thinking that workers were workaholics, kind of didn't want to do work which is interesting. That's why I say it's a two-part question because I was very driven from finding that passion through skateboarding and that culture, which pushed me to want to do my own thing because frankly, I didn't want to work for them. Oh, I get it. That drove me and they gave me, because of their entrepreneurship, their entrepreneurial spirit, primarily my father's, gave me the the sort of foundation and and the, the wings or the opportunity to take and go on that mission. Yeah, that's super interesting. So essentially, to avoid work, you started your own skateboard company to say, I don't want to work. And then you created a bunch of work for yourself. (laughs) But the type of work that you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. By the end of the first year, I realized this was going to be a lot of work. Yeah. So I've been involved with one thing I'm thankful of is, you know, I, I never was actually a pro. I never had my name on a board, which for non skaters listening, the way that professional skateboarding works is your your board sponsor determines your status. And what that means is you have your own signature products. And so people are always confused thinking that I was a pro skateboarder because I got paid to skate and I did it for a living for a certain amount of time. And for non-skaters, that sounds like pro. But for the skateboarding world, it's a very specific definition. Now, what I've really enjoyed is being at the ground floor of a lot of companies that are starting. Now, none of them really made it big, but... My first sponsor was a skate shop called Onshore Board Shop in Visalia, California. And yeah. they started, they threw a contest. I won it. I gave them my sponsor me video. I was their first sponsored writer. And then there's some smaller companies I was on the ground floor of. But man, it's a challenge. What were some of the, the big challenges or, or some of the, the things that you didn't expect? Or how'd you figure out along the way as a teenager? Well... I, I had a few mentors. I, I'm not going to lie. I think mentors were were key, were integral. Graham Stanners was a professional skateboarder from from Scotland. He really, you know, that was my dad wasn't really able to guide me through the skateboarding industry, obviously. So Graham basically taught me, you know, where we make the wood and where we get the wood from, how we get things screen printed. You know, there wasn't digital printing process, processes at the time. You yeah. know, how you literally do the same thing with the t-shirt and stickers and basically just learned how to make things at that time. And, and then I I eventually sort of realized that because I had been traveling the world doing um, skateboarding demonstrations, we call it tours um, for shops and skateboarding distributors for years. And I think it wasn't until, you know, I, I would sit down with Graham and he, you know, we would have to do sales and, he would, you know, pull out his list, you know, a piece of paper, you know, with, with numbers and fax numbers and phone numbers on it and say, Hey, we need to, we need to call these people and, and sell products that I made the connection that, Hey, I had already stayed with these people. I knew a majority of these people that we were going to sell to. So the first wave of selling to the distributor who then sold to the, to the retail stores was actually pretty easy because I had either stayed on their couches or they had, had put us up for, for several years when we were younger, but I think an interesting story for me, like a real big learning as far as like from business 101 was we, we had bought 500 skateboards, filled them on the shelves of the garage 
you know, we had made all the calls to the distributors. We sold those boards in a matter of like two weeks. Yeah. And then all of a sudden all that money comes in and, you know, as a 16 year old, I was like, wow, we're rich. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, I thought we were rich cause I could see the bank, you know, and everything. And then Graham looks at me and I was like, okay. So like, what do we, why I looked to him and I said, well, what do we do now? And he says, well, you know, we need to order, we need to order more boards and, and we need to sell them. So next thing you know, we have, and I would say, I don't know if that was the great mentoring that came to me, but anyways, we ordered another 500 boards, yeah. mostly the same stuff. And I'm like, now what do we do? Cool. We just, you know, he's like, well, he gave me another list. This list of shops was like, several thousand. It was a big sheet of papers, stack of papers. And he, he just dropped it in front of me. And he said, call them up and start selling. <laughs> and I was like, Whoa, what the heck? So I remember like to speed it up a little bit. I remember like shutting all the doors into the garage, you know, picking up the phone kind of had a, a little bit of an idea. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call it a script, but I would say kind of like, I knew what I was going to say. Yeah. And I remember picking up the phone going, Hi, my name is Greg. Oh, and I would just hang up the phone, you know, and then I would, <laughs> I would get freaked out because I was like, what am I, I'm going to tell this. And what am I saying to these people? And I would get a little bit further oh, to where eventually I would say, I'm calling my name is Greg. I'm, you know, calling from good times. And do you want to buy any of our boards? You know, eventually <laughs> somebody would keep talking to me. And I, yeah. and I eventually, you know, after like a couple of weeks of doing that kind of just learned how to do re direct to retail sales and, kind of got into the vibe of it. That, that was one major lesson. There were hundreds of lessons learned in the process of obviously building that brand. Let me ask you about one lesson because this is something that I, I mean, I deal with to this day and I think a lot of people do is hearing no. So did you have a problem initially with getting turned down? Was that a fear that you had or were you okay with it? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was ever okay with it. I think when you're younger, it's sort of like you don't know any better. And you just go, go, go. And I think when you get a little bit more seasoned or get some more experience under your belt, yeah, you sort of know or you understand what no means more. But but yeah, but but as far as like when you would call someone and someone would say, No, I don't want that, or it's not hot, or you know, that's not something we could sell, and you take that to heart. And yeah, especially if you created it, right? I mean, it, it, they're yeah. rejecting your creation. Not just yeah. like, hey, I work for the cell phone company and uh, you don't want to buy this phone. It's like they're rejecting your idea. And that's like way deeper of a wound. It was way <laughs> deeper. And I would say there's another kind of rejection too. And what you find out is like when you first, when I first started that company and I've, I've heard other young people that I mentor say something, sim say things similar. When you first, when I first started it, there was a lot of buzz like, oh, that's super cool. You know, yeah, I'm really into it. But then I started hearing behind my back that like way more people were talking, you know, were yeah. like, oh, he'll never pull it off. You know, oh, they did that graphic that sucked or he doesn't, he's from the Midwest. He'll never get it right. You know, this is California. Yeah. He'll never pull it off. And, and I can't, I can't stress to you like how much that drove me to succeed. Oh, and the haters, very rarely, dude. yeah, and very rarely did anybody ever to this day really tell me that to my face. So interesting. I kind of found out who my friends were. You know, I could count them on like one hand. And you know, you so you, you know, it's it, entrepreneurship is no different today than than it was then. You know that you you have to really kind of like thicken up your skin and, and like at the same point in time, dig deep into your heart to, to develop things that you want to create that you think are, are going to be amazing, not only for yourself, but for others. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's, that's super, super interesting. So take me back a little bit further. How did you start skateboarding in the first place? Is there, is there a story there? Yeah. I, I first started skateboarding in the eighties. Skateboarding was huge. So Everybody in even my small town of Winona, Minnesota skateboarded. I just watched all, you know, my friends at school skateboarding and it wasn't something that I did very well. It wasn't something I was very natural at. Watched, you know, people into BMX and skateboarding and, and eventually we, we built a launch ramp. A, another kid who was actually a little bit more into BMX convinced my dad to build a quarter pipe. 
that quarter pipe turned into a 12 foot and then 24 foot wide half pipe. And then I picked up a magazine, went to the St. Louis um, Island water sports skateboard camp. And then yeah. the rest was history. The rest was history for, for at that point. Cause I got connected into the skateboarding national community or network. And, yep. you know, was, I was hooked at that point. I think it took me to experience the, the, I don't want to say the thrill, but the, the, the feeling of riding these big ramps, which was something I felt like I just really enjoyed. Whereas if I was just purely going to be riding on the streets, I probably wouldn't have been, I probably wouldn't have continued skateboarding. It wasn't that fun for me, nor, nor was I very good at it. Sure. Interesting. So now you're, you know, you're the, you're the chief strategy officer at engaged youth co you've been doing this agency thing with youth marketing for a while now. That's how we met, right? Yeah. We were talking with influencers and stuff like that. One thing that I think about influencers, I always say skateboarding was influencer marketing before influencer marketing. And oh, yeah. skateboarding is a very basic, you know, it's it's not too complex, but essentially is you have a skateboarder and he's your favorite skateboarder and you ride what he rides and you wear what he wears just because you like him. Like Andrew Reynolds, actually great story here. I met Riley Hawk when he yeah. was like nine. And so I was at the Morro Bay skate park with my mom. I was like 15, 16, something like that. And, you know, his grandmother was there and my mom was there. They're sitting next to each other on the bench, you know, and they're like, Oh, nice. your kid's good. Your kid's good. And his grandmother's like, yeah, his dad is Tony Hawk. And <laughs> I was like, no way, dude. And he was all, he was decked out in Reynolds gear, Andrew Reynolds gear. And that nice. was right before Andrew Reynolds left birdhouse and started Baker. But as I look at influencer marketing and I look at skateboarding, it's like, this has been influencer marketing, you know? And I'm I'm curious, did you see that or, or what was it that you experienced in skateboarding that enabled you to take this jump to this agency and this, this marketing world? Because I think people, like what people trip out about me is like, oh, you're good at skateboarding, but you also do business. And it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of found my way here and it's, it's similar with you. I'm just really curious. There's a lot of people who are good at skateboarding that, you know, they didn't um, really do anything other than the ski. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's a nice way to say That's it, right? That's nice. Mean, yeah. Yeah. The skateboarding world does not enable, I would say, personal development outside of skating when you're on a tour and everybody's doing anything for you. Right. So I believe that's an accurate statement, sir. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So that's enough of me talking. You take it away. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I think that like when you're building teams of athletes, of course, when when I was in the, the mid 90s, I didn't call them athletes. They were just skaters. Of course. But they're athletes and that's yes. sports marketing. You learn yep. later in life that that's sports marketing and then that's talent management. Right. And every once in a while you, you would work with sort of a musician or somebody else, you know, more talent management. And sure. then as you know, we got more and more sophisticated with the athlete or musician marketing in the nineties, we had agreements and, and we had uh, photo incentives because the magazines uh, and videos were the way that you, that was the medium. So we learned, I learned, and, and my business partners at the time learned how to, you know, craft these, these influencer agreements, these talent agreements very early on, which all stems from sports marketing. Yeah. And, you know, and then in the 98 to 99, I, as you know, but others don't, that, I mean, I ran Era Footwear and Sense Footwear, which so there and therefore I was able to work with a lot of different creative talent in, in building up those footwear brands. And then we know how the story went with Nike SB figured out the market and all the boutique footwear brands died. True. So I had to reinvent myself and, and not to jump from the, the story, but that, you know, the 99s when I started the first uh, youth marketing agency, but, yeah. but just to directly get like to just to directly sink into that first question, I think the, the, the path through building skateboarding companies and then footwear brands definitely taught you business basics, marketing 101, how to deal with talent and influencers, if you will. And then just how to like work and build those relationships. Because the key that, that all that sort of ladders up to is, is working with brand or building and nurturing brand ambassadors. 
not right. just doing like, hey, I need a skateboarder to work with me for for this company for one ad. Right. And then I got this great ad or I've got this great, you know, nowadays a TikTok or, or an Instagram post. But back, right. you know, back then what you learned was how do you develop, develop a relationship with this talent and, and incorporate them, involve them in the company in a way that's meaningful, that's going to inevitably, you know, be leveraged through all communication touch points and products to build the brand and, and, and sell products. Right. I think too, what I'm taking from you is just like being aware of what you were doing, which is super cool. Like, even if maybe you weren't aware of it at the time, at least, you know, you look back and you're like, hold up, I was doing all these things. And for me, the unlock was when I went to marketing school and I got my marketing degree at Sacramento State, shout out Hornets. I was like, oh crap, like this is why every, this is why the skate shop did this. This is why the board company did this. This is why the apparel company did this was like these marketing principles. So I was experiencing them, but I just didn't know what they were until I, in a, you know, in a, in a school educational background, it was presented to me. And I, was, and I, I think that enabled me to, to get a much better education because I had all this life experience. I had experienced this stuff. I knew it. I just didn't know the definitions, you know, or the, the terminology, I guess you could say. Right. Right. I didn't know any terminology. In fact, the funniest thing, like when I built the first was basically more like a youth consulting company in 99, which was premise youth marketing, which is my, my first youth marketing agency. When cool. I started working with landscape structures on, on they were building youth and, and, and action sports focused facilities. And I was in a, a board meeting, you know, with all these executives, they invited me in as this like youth or action sports oriented expert. Yeah. And when I, when I walked out of the, uh, the meeting before I walked out of the meeting, they said, you're our consultant you know, our, our youth culture, our action sports consultant. And I, and I literally walked out of that meeting and was like, that's what this is. I'm a consultant, you know? And I was like, cause I literally didn't know. And then I went and got a bunch of books and I was like, oh, there's this whole consulting field. And, and yeah. I, you know, it sounds stupid now, but like, that's literally how I learned. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, so we have to brand this. It's not just going to be like me. You know, I've got other right. colleagues or friends that are going to do this work with me that worked with me on the other projects I've, you know, businesses I've been doing and we're a consultancy. And then eventually, you know, it's a youth marketing agency. Cause then I, I was asked to speak at a Y Pulse event in San Francisco and I went there I actually had like already had like two or three clients even. And I went there and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a youth marketing conference. <laughs> I'm a youth marketing agency. This isn't a youth and action sports consultancy anymore. Now I Dang. got a youth marketing agency and, 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 and hot damn, there's a whole business for this. I mean, Who would have thought? Who would have thought perception is reality, right? But it's the truth. It's good. Man, I used to, I worked at this design studio a long time ago and I joined my friend who was an amazing graphic designer and animator. And, but he was by himself, you know, so there's this, this perception of being a freelancer, right? When I joined him in the spare bedroom of his house and somebody would email him and I responded, business manager, John Davidson, dude, the perception changed our budgets. It changed the way people worked with us. It, it changed the types of clients we could get. And I didn't even do anything. I was, I was still, you know, I was drinking from the firehouse for sure. but just the fact that in people's minds, he went from some guy you pay hourly who works out of his house on the weekends and late at night to a design studio, you know? And it's like, that trips me out so much. Just how I always say you're legit the moment people think you are, you know, and it's perception, perception is everything. Yeah. It is. If you can deliver the goods. Right. And then, and that's the next step, right. Is then delivering on it. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I'm curious to get your take on this because I have all these opinions of the skateboard industry and you're probably the most adept person I know to, to kind of bounce them off of. But I think one of the things that has hit skateboarding, well, I'll say this, this is a better way to say it. The way that we consume content now and decreased attention spans and all that, I think has hit skateboarding 
more than just about any other industry. Because it used to be that, you know, teams have spent five years putting together a video part. And you're touring the country, doing all these things, you put your video part, and then you're chilling. Like some dudes wouldn't even skate for like a year, you know, until they had to start the five-year process to start filming the next one, you know? And then just everybody watches that video over and over and over again, and they buy all your boards and you're in all the magazines, and then somebody else releases it. Oh, we better get to work on our next one because now we're number two instead of number one because these other guys released their video. Well, I know especially the OGs in skateboarding are like, Instagram is effing killing us, you know? Because it's like, I put my body on the line I jump and the rails people are skating nowadays. You know, it's like I jumped down this triple kinker sacked five times, whatever for a, th- for a three second clip, put out a five minute video part. And you said, cool. Swipe up to the next one. Rough, rough. And I think what I see, I think the, the, the brand that does it the best and they do a number of different things very well, in my opinion is primitive skateboarding. And what I've seen is like they do smaller pieces of content more often. And like rather than doing like a full skate video, which they've done one, Encore was recent. It was amazing. But they'll, when a new a new graphic comes out, they'll do a video with a couple of the guys, you know? And so you're it's a it's a way to get your product to get above the noise of everybody else rather than just seeing it on the board wall. And they just have shorter content that they release more often. So you're doing the same amount of filming about. Yeah. But you're just, it's your, your content strategy, the way you release it, which is super, super interesting. Yeah. I mean, they, the magazines and, and, you know, DVDs, you know, ran, ran everything. Yeah. And, and the internet, you know, it sounds crazy to say the internet, but the internet, and then let's just give it to Instagram, you know, sped everything up by like a minimum of like a hundred thousand times faster. Yes. I mean, that's conservative, right? Just, I was going to say 10,000, but I'm gonna go with a hundred thousand and right. call it a million, whatever you want, but that's how much faster. And I mean that like quantifiably by the competition, the, the young talent that's oh. like chasing your heels to just take, to get capture attention, capture the Dude. attention that, that you yeah. were seeking. I mean, is there any such thing as an NBD now? Like pros roll into a city. The kids are so good. You know, homeboys already back nose blooded the biggest rail in town. What are you going to do on this? It's the same for everything. Like NBDs for people that do stunts, you know, NBDs for dancers, you know, the competition. So the bar is so high to capture attention that you just have to work that much harder and you have to be that much more creative and yeah. I think in some sort of subcultures that were less, less, less established, it's just the norm. Whereas if you go into certain right. sports and in, in industries like music and, and, and all of real action sports, basically that, you know, in some ways, you know, had to completely reinvent everything, which, which was, and in some ways still is painful. Yeah, I I should say too for our non-skating audience, NBD stands for never been done. And one of the amazing things about a skateboard video is that if you're watching a skateboard video, the tricks that that skater is doing on those obstacles in the streets have literally never been done by any other person on those obstacles. And so it is a, a major faux pas in skateboarding. If you do a trick that has already been done on an obstacle, filming it for a video part, obviously warming up and everything. But that's a major challenge is these, these athletes, these skaters are not just going out and like putting their life on the line for like their favorite trick or what sounds good at the time. No, they have a filmer there with them. Who's a human encyclopedia. And they're like, okay, Hollywood high. Let's see. It's been front Smith, back Smith, front tail, back tail, kick. Chaz Ortiz did a kick foot front board five years ago. Oh, is a kick foot back lip open? Nope, Nigel did that, you know, right after doing that 270 lip. And you know, you've got to find the trick that is number one going to be good enough for people, you know, for it to make some noise, but also that literally nobody has ever done, which is insane. I'm so glad I'm not a pro skater. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Like 
Man, like, could you imagine, like, standing at the top of a 20 stair, like, sore, and just looking down, and just, you know, after you scroll through Instagram, and you're like, ah, I gotta put, like, you know, Volcom needs an ad. (laughs) What you got, buddy? Dude, you got Rhino at the bottom of the stairs, just like, send it, you know, and you're just like, how did I get here? You know, it's so funny, like, that was my dream. You know, and being 37 years old, I look back and I'm like, I think the the best thing that happened to me was I was a little bit better at skateboarding and actually was pro. <laughs> Man, what a trip. But we still do it. You know, we still do it too. I mean, as much as we can, right? How, how often yeah. are you skating nowadays? Uh, that's a good question. Depends on what week you ask me. I try to yeah. do twice a week. Do you? Okay. Yeah. I, if I want to learn something still, I have to do like two or three days a week. Learn. I mean like relearn. Yeah. <laughs> when I say learn. Dude, I feel but, so thankful. Like I, my, I keep muscle memory really well. So I actually don't have to skate that often. Now when I say don't have to, I want to skate every day, obviously, but I skate about once a week. And if I get hurt, if I have to take a month off or something, dude, my first time back, I'm skating better than I ever have before because I'm just, I'm fresh, you know? Yeah. But, and I'm skating streets. Well, I'm not in the streets. I'm in the park. There's something that when the security guard kicks you out and they're younger than you are, it's time to stay in the park. That's so funny, man. (laughs) Put your baseball cap forward, buddy. That's right. That's right. Get back in the skate parks. Oh man, that is too funny. So what's, what's the most recent trick you've learned? I'm I'm curious. Mm. And when was it? Like a new trick. Mm. New trick. Uh, I think I just did like these Crail half cab one footed grinds, which are weird. Like hardly anyone can do it. Okay. It's like, like a Bob Burnquist thing. It's or? not like, yeah, it's not even that. It's just kind of like a weird little trick. It's just people trip out on it. Cause they think it's interesting. They think it's like super crazy, but it's really easy for me. I just yeah. I do all kinds of weird crail tricks. Um, half cab crails, alley-oop half cab crails. I did half alley-oop half cab crail board smack. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want like Andy McDonald or Jimmy Wilkins or anybody to, to go out and like take my tricks. Cause they could go do them first try, but they're originals <laughs> that I've created. Right. Like, you know, I've, I've got a whole bunch of tricks that no one's done that are just these weird random tricks I did because I could sort of invent weird things that no one else cared about doing. And uh, sure. so and I just happened to do them. And then there's so many hundreds of thousands of tricks that people, you know, haven't really gotten to some of mine yet. So you know, but yeah, and just most of the stuff has just been perfecting things that I, I did in the past and just trying to bring them back and go higher, go further. Yeah. You know, I haven't really, I want to really say like something new, new in a long time. Yeah. Like brand new, new twists on things, you know, here and there. Yeah. I'm kind of like relearning. Like when, when, when I get bored with a trick and I stop doing it and then I lose it. And then I'm like, oh crap, like I lost that trick. Like I got to relearn it. So that's kind of like my process. I, I don't think, like what's on my my agenda is like uh, front over crooks. Like I've just like, I haven't done that trick on rails in so, so long. And there's a perfect hip to rail I skate all the time. So I'm like, man, next time I go, I need to like just do a bunch of them. Kickflip no slides is a cool one that I haven't done in a long time. I did a kickflip back. I sent you the clip. I think a kickflip back yeah. I did for a little old DC shoes, uh, footwear video. And I was so hyped because I hadn't done that trick in like three years, but I wasn't ready to not be able to do it anymore. And I was, dude, it was the me- biggest mental battle. Just like getting myself just to try it, you know, it's like, it's such a, yeah. I mean, like for instance, like there's like the, mem- the Memorial bowl in San Diego, it's this huge crater with this like six foot channel and it's all at a yeah. big angle. Like, I guess I've like overcome like, like I, cause I just recently did like chest high, like backside ollies over it. And yeah. like the first time that I went to try to get over it, like I was almost like afraid my body wasn't going to go over it. Yeah. And I, so for me, like <laughs> doing something that over a channel on something like with rounded corners is like still a major challenge for me. So that's like learning something new. And I remember like the last time I was at Tony Hawk's a while ago, I, you know, they have, there's this, for, for those who, uh, you know, viewers who don't know, there's this massive, like, well, I think it's eight foot, but it also has the opportunity of being 12 foot wide channel. And if you fall, 
you know, you're basically going to fall like, you know, about 15, 20 feet down to, to, to nothing to the ground yeah, and die. I've seen pictures and video of it. Yeah. Here. So I, I, I remember I, I was about going over backside Ollie over that channel, which is, it's a pretty ginormous feat. You know, a lot of professionals can't do it. And yeah. I remember clearing it and I remember going up to go approach it the first time. And I was like, you know, I'm not ready. And I just stopped and like went back to go do it, you know, to try it again. Yeah. And then the next time I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And then I did it. And like, I was like, I'm going to go home because I just felt that was an achievement made and I don't need to die today. And like, try it again. But then like two or three weeks later, Sky Brown, the uh, she's very talented. Oh yeah. Creator we, well, we're at Venice. Supporter. She was there. Yeah. No, she's yeah, awesome. yeah. And she's her, her and her family are pretty good friends of mine, but she, the worst case scenario happened to her obviously. And she, she's on, she, she hesitated just like I did, but I, I veered oh. away. She went for it and she went upside down and had all, I, all I kinds saw a of picture internal in the injuries. Hospital and stuff. And oh my God. I can't, I can't, speak to exactly what all our injuries were, but they were like near catastrophic. So, so every once in a while, when you, when you hesitate, it's for a good reason, you know, and I guess the times I've gotten hurt are hesitating and going for it, you know? And like, there's something inside you. Like I broke my back when I was 17 and it was at a skate contest. It's actually a great story. So I, (laughs) I was getting this contest. My mom came to watch me big skate park in Visalia, the Visalia skate park. I won the first contest there. This is the second one. So there's this a little bit of pressure, you know, and everybody's around um, the outside of the park. Well, they have a three foot high quarter pipe and then they have a four foot tall fence and then there's cement on the other side. So naturally you got to launch over the fence. Right. Yeah. And so I used to do that all the time. I just like Ollie the fence. And I remember the, the owner of onshore, Derek Shaw, rest in peace. He actually passed away a long time ago. But amazing, amazing guy. But he he told me, he said, John, don't jump the fence in warm-ups because it'll surprise the judges when you do it in the contest. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, my mom came to watch me. I kind of like tweaked my ankle a little bit in warm-ups. And I was like, mom, if I get hurt, like, don't say anything. Don't come over. Because my mom will get into it. Go, John, go. <laughs> like That's for real, my mom. And so I was like, chill out. So... My second run, I'm not skating very well. I was like, oh, I, I bet if I ollie the fence, I'll at least maybe I'll get third or second or something. I'm going too slow and I knew it. I was like, I'm going for it anyway. You know, dude, front foot caught on the top. Fortunately, we had to wear helmets in that competition. Or I, I mean, probably would have cracked my head open. But I just saw my hands and the cement compress my back the wrong way, compress, fracture two vertebrae, everything. Well, the whole mm. skate park, dude, Room, and my mom is sitting in the stands talking to some lady. She's talking for like five minutes, and then eventually she's like, uh, "Excuse me, that was my son who fell, and I should probably go check him out." It's just like, and then last part of the story: some kid is running over. He falls. He trips off like one of the ramps. He hits his teeth on the ground, so he's bleeding like crazy, screaming bloody murder. Well, the ambulance comes and I'm in shock. I'm just chilling. They didn't see what happened between either one of us, right? So they see me on the ground, chilling in shock. They see this kid screaming bloody murder. Oh, my mouth. We both get in the same ambulance. They had me get up and have him lie down. And they even had me jump down out of the ambulance. And dude, could you imagine like if that like if something had happened as a result, like and then we found out my back was fractured. So, oh, gnar. Not good. Not good. I'm all good now, though. I do a lot of core workouts. All right, Greg. So I have two questions to bring it back to you and your business career here. The The first one is, has the failure of skateboarding, the, like the fact that we fail for fun, the fact that you try things for fun over and over and over again, and the minority is rolling away, has that impacted your ability to handle failure or challenges in business is my first question. Yes. The direct answer is yes. I, I didn't really recognize that for a long time though. Yeah, me either. Uh, yeah. Cause I would just get just as frustrated in business as I did with my, you know, frustrations, you know, falling and, you know, eating right. as a skateboarder, but it definitely does. Like it, it definitely helps you sort of, build confidence and, 
and you can kind of see, you can recognize the smaller wins, yeah. the steps of, you know, making progress and you can kind of associate those small feats or steps of progress and know that they're, they're laddering up to bigger win. Yeah. And, and I, as I know that I think about that, I'm more conscious of that. I should say as I've gotten older. Yeah. I, I didn't realize it. I heard Mikey Taylor talk about it on a podcast one time and he was, you know, he's all into like investing and stuff and he's doing mm-hmm. some amazing things. But he, he said, it's like, what I do, what I've done for a living professionally is fall <laughs> on the ground. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize that. Like, I'm pretty, I don't know. I don't give up too easily. And I was like, I wonder if that has something to do with it. My other question is, share a little bit with us, like some relevant, like youth marketing stuff. Because like, I feel like, I feel like skateboarders are the hardest to reach. And I feel like I understand gamers and the esports community so well because I'm a skateboarder. And it's kind of like being raised by wolves. And then you go to the dog park and you're like, what's everybody so intimidated about? And it's simply that, you know, we come from an industry that will not let anybody in from the outside. And gamers, I'm like, gamers just want you to like show you that you care about them and make your experience better. What's so hard about this, guys? And I think I think it's really a, a community first mindset. People are just can't get over thinking about themselves first, you know, but man, I just love, you know, you have this, this, you've had this amazing skateboarding career and you've had this amazing youth marketing career and mark just broad marketing career beyond just youth, but share, drop a little knowledge on us here on the DLC drop podcast, my friend. I think the key is like, is to contribute value and yeah. to, to care you know, to care about not only like what you make as a business, but to care about the community that you serve or the audience that you serve and, you know, you know, really put forth the energy to, to make a difference, you know, put forth, I'm not necessarily to give back or anything, but just to make a difference to, to improve or progress or create, innovate, do something that's just, special. And I think knowing how to make the right cultural connections with between a brand, a product or or any type of a service organization and, and, and a targeted cultural community, whatever, and and, an audience is, you know, it's like step one. Right. It's not something that you do later. It's not a, you know, a seasonal thing where you all of a sudden decide that, you know, we're, we're like this during the holiday season and we're like this during the, the spring. It's like making a connection to, to audiences that best fit with your product, you know, or service, and then, you know, making a commitment to that audience. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, you know, big piece. The other, I think, you know, once you do that, in which has been, I guess, I don't want to call it the secret sauce, but it's really been the reason why I've been able to maintain a leadership spot in youth culture, youth marketing for so long is that my, I say me, but me and, and my team yeah, over the years, teams have, have really mastered ways to facilitate co-creation, facilitate advisory councils and groups where we, we, we build, we bring the audience in as partners in production in, in any marketing campaign, any new product development, any brand development, you know, whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter. You know, we, yeah. it could be 15, a mix of 15 people, or it could be up to 300. And the thing is, it's like, I've done that for Walt Disney world. I've done that for, for leading cause cause organizations, partnership for drug free kids, you know, lists of, of well over a hundred companies. But if you break it down, what do I do? It's just yeah. a more sophisticated version of what we did, bringing it all the way back to good times and then the footwear brands mm-hmm. of making that cultural connection, you know, facilitating a process with the right people, yeah. do something for the right reasons. Of course, making profit is one of those reasons. Of course. And not the only reason. And, and I think 
sort of, you could even say this wraps around all those topics are, are finding a way to be authentic with your brand and your, your identity, but then be authentic from the perception of that audience, Mm. which is often very different. And when you, when you find that balance of, of, you know, developing something that, that the audience feels is authentic and it's truly authentic or original, you know, it's something very, you know, it's something authentic it's something, you know, special. Then at that point, that's just the starting point to getting relevant. And that's what we're all seeking to do is we're seeking to, to take very, you know, authentic products and services with, you know, and then finding audiences that also, they feel authentic and well-connected to them. And then our work starts. I'm joking, but then our real work starts is to go get relevant and then, you know, create experiences and and engagement that, that brings results and business results from, you know, acquisition, sales, fan bases, you know, what have you, whatever your goals are. We could talk about this forever and ever. I'm going to get lost in a second. So you you need to bring it back. Pull it back, pull it back. Pull the shoot. Yeah, I always say, you know, authenticity is not a tactic, it's a mindset. And so, like, you should you should not be saying, how can we be authentic? You should just be authentic. Right. And then step one is not even step one because that's just your entire mentality. Now, you might need to do some homework as to, and I understand this, like, okay, non-endemics who, like, don't understand the space okay, what are the different touch points? Like, what do people like? You know, like the relevance, right? Like in the gaming industry, you know, like Among Us has like been insane. AOC is streaming Among Us today or or she did yesterday or something. And it's just like this huge thing. Bleacher Report, they do this, this animated series called Gridiron Heights. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just kind of spoofs the NFL situation for that week. And the last episode was like players as the Among Us characters, like like you know, shooting each other off the, off the ship and everything. And so I think it's like, I understand like needing to figure out like, okay, what do the kids like? But you need to start with how do I add value? And I'll give you this example. I'm really curious to get you to react to this because this is my guiding light in like every activation, just the way I think about everything. And I'm is Nike and skateboarding. And that's a loaded statement, but I'm going to give you one example here. I always say Nike is two things in skateboarding. Public enemy, public enemy number one and market share number one. Like you go to any skate park, all the kids are wearing Nikes, right? Yeah. And so Nike actually took three, three different times to try to get into the skateboarding space. The first two times it failed miserably. The third time they sponsored core dudes. I'm talking Chet Childress. Richard Mulder, right? Like guys were who, who were beyond reproach in the eyes of the industry where people would give them a chance. You know, like they wouldn't just be like, F you, you're with Nike. They would be like, why are you wearing Nikes? And the answer was, man, you can hate, but they are flying me all around the world enabling to do what I love to do for, for a living. And so, and then they built that. Now they have the super team. Now they, they sponsor everybody. But the crowd, the crowning moment in my mind where Nike was embraced. And this is why, I mean, they've earned my trust in skateboarding. Now, do they do everything right? Of course not, right? But I skate Nikes because I think the shoe is is a better product than a lot of them out there. You know, now you could say, okay, Vans or, you know, is is way up there too. And you've got obviously these other big brands. But this is the point where I thought, I think Nike like earned the community's trust and it was the West LA courthouse. And oh, so- yeah. People unfamiliar with the skateboarding scene is that uh, skateboarding is all about street skateboarding. It's not about the parks. It's about doing it in the streets, skating what's not meant to be skated. And one of the best skate spots in the entire world is the West LA Courthouse, or sometimes referred to as the Santa Monica Courthouse. And so it's in all the videos in the 90s, perfect ledges. It's like a skate park. It's like a skate plaza. And over time, you know, the, the act of skateboarding destroys property. It's unfortunate because it wouldn't be illegal if it didn't. But ultimately, it became illegal to to skate at the the courthouse. And Nike worked with the city of Los Angeles to legalize skateboarding at the courthouse. And they refurbished it with beautiful metal edges. Now, you could 
you know, skateboards have an opinion. Is it still the streets? Because now it's got metal edges. But they gave, they used their evil powers, right? Which is their their large sum of money and their influence for good to give skateboarding something that skateboarding could not get for themselves. Yeah. And you can hate on Nike for all sorts of reasons. But if you look, you can look at that situation and you can't hate on that no matter how much you like them or you don't. And I, so that's my guiding light. And I'm like, dude, let's do this in esports. You know, let's do this in other subcultural communities. Like, if you can give the audience something that they want but can't attain for themselves, your brand will be embraced. And so I'm just, I, I'm curious to to get your reaction to that amazing case study because I think it's no, I, I mean, I say I have an intimate knowledge of that, having like lived with, you know, Jaya Bondarov and other, a lot of the original Nike uh, yeah. athletes, and did the whole story with Nike's approval in my book, and I would say I, I agree with you. In fact. One, it's, but it's not really surprising that they make a superior product or equal to and or a superior product in many ways. Of course. But I think the R&D and everything about, coming from traditional sports and applying it, the the insoles, like, you know, they have the new Bruin React or whatever it's called. And it's like, yeah, you, you just have like a gazillion dollars of R&D and you can apply this to skateboarding and skateboarding is pretty, skateboarding shoes have been pretty simple in the past. Yeah. But what Nike did was 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 very simple when they finally de, you know decided to execute on it. And they did three things: they listened, they co-created, and they committed. Mm. And when they did that and listened to not just the the talent or the athletes, but the retailers, and said, "Bring back the dunk," yeah, and you know, bring in some of your heritage. Support and the then, local skate shops. Yeah. And then make special, make, you know, special products in colorways and, and even, you know, entire product that was purely support the localized retailer. Yep. It was as terrible as it sounds, but it was, it was thinking global and acting locally. It was influencer driven. It was connected to a very core audience. And the, the genius of that segmentation or targeting strategy is that they understood how just skateboarding as a core target demographic is too small. So they understood how to, you know, cross connect sneakerheads, artists, you know, skateboarders, yeah. you know, other people into fashion to create a super group, which was a very commercially viable audience that yeah. then just impacted all of pop culture. And, and that's what they did and continue to do today. And, you know, the rest is history. You just gave me a great idea that I'm not going to share on this podcast. I'm going to call you after this and tell you, because I think there's something we can do together that it would be very unique in the sports space that hasn't been done that would provide a ton of value. So thank you for I love it. putting that idea in my head. Last thing I want to talk about here before I let you get on with your day and conquering the world is simply uh, a little, I, I want to say, depth with the skepticism of non-endemics. And this is my perspective, and I want to get yours, is in skateboarding, and I think it's true in esports as well, we're not so much fearful of brands coming in the space as much as we are them leaving once they've got what they want from us. And I think that's the core thing that brands need to understand. Now, now skateboarders are there's a whole aspect to it to pure, you know, skateboarders are purists, right? So you want to keep the space pure, you don't want to like make it whack and all of this stuff, but we've all lived through like anybody who's been around for any length of time, whether it's skateboarding or esports, has seen these spikes in opportunities or tournaments or or content because a big brand came in and put dollars in. And then everybody lost their jobs when the when the brand left and they got what they won from our community and they saw, okay, it's not here anymore and they left. Now, I'm a business guy and I understand the C-suite. You know, I understand them looking at the numbers and saying, look, we need ROI on our partnerships. And like the reason I put money in is because I make more money than if I don't or if I put it somewhere else. So there is like a business aspect to it that I I recognize and I respect and and I understand. But this is what I would say 
to brands is one of the biggest things that you can do for our, our subcultures, for our niche communities, is to commit long term. And because, I mean, we, we, we've seen it a hundred times. And so what's, what's happened is like, we get excited when the spikes come right early on, but we've seen a couple, we've seen it happen a couple of times. So now the next person comes and says, Hey, we want to do a tournament or, Hey, we want to, you know, Nike coming into skateboarding, right. Or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, you're not here for me. Cause I, I've seen people like you and I know you just want my dollars and my eyeballs until they don't do what you do it for you anymore and then you're going to move on yeah accurate it's very accurate there's no real one simple answer for it either i think yeah you know when you want to target subcultures it could be beauty vloggers you know huge subcultures skateboarding it could be esports obviously music esports skateboarding have a very you know some interesting and not similarities but you know in, in certain ways of how you would approach the cultures Sure. I think you know, one one lesson learned is that you, if you want to tap those cultures, that you don't have to necessarily go in big, blow it all at once, and and then not be able to continue. You know, just to kind of go slow and steady. Good point. When you are going to connect with with cultural groups, you know, it could be you know really, I guess anything. I guess interest based activity centric cultural groups. I'm trying to kind of get that all out in one. This you know, if you just jump in and blow all your cash, that's like, that's going to last for one quarter. You know, it might make more sense to just, you know, have a smaller, more subtle presence and, and stay the, you know, if you want to be trusted, if you want to build, if you actually want to build roots yeah, and, and, and actually have them earn your, you know, earn the audience's trust, which then, you know, is the best recipe for a, a ongoing customer relationship. That's, that's, at least yeah. one tangible piece of advice. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I, I think in you know multiple ways in just life too. What what burns hot burns out, you know. And so you got that. You start slow. Now people might say, okay, if you're just doing a little bit, are you are you really committed, right? And I think part of that has to do with maybe who you're doing it with, like who your partners in the space are, because yeah. you have to create advocates for yourself for your brand to say, yeah, man. No, Chipotle is legit. Like they're here for us. We're supporting them, you know, in esports or whatever that example is. It's hard for big companies. I'm just going to, I'm not going to name any names because I'm, I'm all these yeah. like specific companies are swirling in my head. And I've been told in, in meetings, hey, you know, we don't have at our big global retailer, we don't have people like you, we don't have 20 or 30 of you to, to make that cultural connection that way. So there are other, you know, ways of, of making connections to consumer audiences. They they all do stem from a, a, a true care, a true desire to contribute value, which is something that we've mentioned multiple times in this. And I guess it's just moving from, you know, pure, you know, media buying to content driven storytelling around something interesting that matters to the audience that can help you sell your product. And then you have a symbiotic relationship. Obviously many companies and organizations and agencies do an an incredible job at doing that kind of storytelling and many don't. Yeah. Which keeps us in business. Man, I could keep talking to you for a million years, both marketing Absolutely. and skateboarding. And that's what I enjoy about our, our conversations that we have all the time. Likewise. Before I let you go, anything that you would like to plug? Where can people find you? You know, this is your promo I, moment. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think I think to plug, you know, if you're looking to to connect in a meaningful way with, with you know, alpha generation from tweens, teens, and young adults, I think like our, our company, Engage Youth Code, does a great job doing that. I think, you know, the plug is to, to commit your teams and bring the, pull the right people together in any sort of project or endeavor that you do to, to build that authenticity and then get your, get your company message and your content storytelling and, and your product or service to be relevant. You know, great product is the, the best form of marketing. And I could go on and on and on. I, the way where you find me best and where you find my, 
you know, where you tap into my thought leadership is on LinkedIn, Greg Witt, cool. think with Wit is, is, is the name of my handle, but that's the best place to connect with me on LinkedIn. Perfect, man. Well, thank you for joining us. And I also just want to thank our, our audience uh, for joining and supporting the podcast. So this has been another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast with guest Greg Witt. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.